Let's turn now to God's holy and inspired word as we read uh, this evening, Revelation chapter 4, the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. read the entire chapter. It's not a very long chapter, and the entire chapter will also be the text for tonight, and you might, uh, if you are inclined to, to keep your Bibles open or handy to follow along as we go through the message of God and the Holy Spirit in this chapter, this fourth chapter of God's inspired word, Revelation 4. John the Apostle, of course, was the one who was recording these words as they were describing, as he was describing the visions that the Lord gave to him uh, on the Isle of Patmos. After these things, says John, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads." Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having seven wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And will cast our crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So far the reading of God's word. Notice how it describes the throne above every throne. <clears throat> May God's blessing be added to his word as we hear it and also as we listen to it expounded. This past Monday, dear friends in Christ, the attention of millions of people throughout the world were focused on the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II of England or more precisely, of the United Kingdom. Especially, of course, in the UK, which had declared declared a holiday for the occasion, uh, people by the thousands lined the streets 
to see the funeral procession of the queen's casket and those accompanying it. An estimated millions more saw this event on their television screens. I myself saw a portion of it on the TV, and it certainly was impressive. Commentators kept saying that nothing like it has ever or perhaps never will again parallel this particular event. Queen Elizabeth was certainly beloved in her own country and highly regarded throughout the world. And what earthly ruler has ever reigned 70 years? That will likely never happen again. I was particularly interested in the funeral service for her. That's why I turned on my television to see what would it be like in, in Westminster Abbey in London, that great and massive cathedral. And what a gathering of people were there. Numerous leaders from many of the world's nations. Presidents, premiers, kings and queens, royalty, princes from, from other countries, all kinds of dignitaries. They all sat there in that service. It was impressive. I don't know how many of you saw any of this, but I have to say that I was uh, also impressed by the clearly Christian character of that service. As the Queen's casket entered the sanctuary, the choir sang the beautiful words of our Lord Jesus Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Far by the words of Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And the choir sang a number of psalms, like we like to sing the psalms. And the congregation sang some of the great hymns of the church, like, All my hope on God is founded, and Christ is made the sure foundation. And the scripture readings included from John 14, often read at funerals, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Psalm 23 was read. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 7, describing the new Jerusalem. Adorned as a bride for her husband. The bride, of course, being a reference here to the church and her husband the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prayers that were offered certainly were prayed in the name of Christ. I would have to say that the gospel was certainly presented there in these words of scripture and songs. But there was one thing that did keep coming through my mind as I heard all of that. Actually, there, there are two thoughts that I had that came to my mind at that moment. <clears throat> I'll mention a second in, in a moment. My first thought as I listened and saw all these world dignitaries sitting there in that great cathedral, many, many, by the way, singing along in some of these hymns, I thought, now how many of them truly have a personal faith in Jesus Christ? Do they believe, do they really believe the words of Christ that they heard and sang such as, I know that my Redeemer liveth. 
and that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Did they believe that? Thinking of Queen Elizabeth herself, her, her body was lying there in that royal coffin. I thought to myself, I just asked, I said, was she a child of the king? The true king? Yes, her, her father was, on earth was King George VI, who was relatively young when he died. And so that Elizabeth came to be a queen at a very young age, explaining, of course, uh, her being able, by the grace of God, to live so long and reign for 70 years. But was she also, was she also a child of the king of kings? That thought came to our mind. And I was glad to hear from a person they interviewed who knew her well when he commented that she took her faith very seriously and she went to church every Sunday. I'm sure that meant whenever she was like at Windsor Castle. She was always there. She said by the thousands of times she was there. I doubt very much whether her children do the same. Yes, even though the people of England today themselves rarely go to church, maybe 10 to 15% ever do. There's very little true, true Christian faith remaining in Great Britain today, as of course is the case in most of the European countries and other lands too, of course. But at least in that service, they heard the gospel. But then, and I, I know this is a rather long introduction to my message tonight, but I have to yet add a second thought about that world-renowned queen and her gloriously celebrated funeral. And it's simply this. Yes, she was still but just a human being, a mortal, just like you and me. Her body was put in a coffin like ours will be. A lifeless corpse that will eventually turn to dust. And that royal crown and scepter which was resting on her coffin was in a special portion of that service, that actually the subsequent service, was removed from it. Was removed from it. Because her reign and her life were now over. And you know, as time goes on, she will be remembered, of course, less and less, forgotten by most in the world, indeed, if they ever even knew her. <clears throat> and that brings me then to our scripture lesson for tonight, Revelation 4. What we read and learn from this chapter, people of God, is that we have a far, far superior sovereign on the throne, one whose glory and majesty and power cannot even be compared to what an earthly sovereign might have, infinitely greater. And that person on the throne will be on that throne forever, for he is the Lord our God. Indeed, it is him before whom all the creatures of the earth must bow, and who alone is worthy of worship and the worship of all people. So let's look at this chapter then tonight, which came to my mind as I thought of this coming Sunday and being here with you. 
I thought of this passage. First of all, let's look at the one who sits on the throne and how he's described here. And secondly, we're going to look for a little while at those who surrounded his throne, who they are. And thirdly, then, we will also end then with the response offered by those around the throne to him who is on the throne. And so we begin, first of all, by looking at the one sitting on the throne above all thrones. It's a throne scene that we have here in chapter 4 of Revelation, recorded by John. As you know, the book of Revelation is a record of the visions that God, through his son Christ, Jesus Christ, gave to John while John was exiled on the island of Patmos for his faith and testimony to Jesus. What we have here in chapter 4 is the second vision that John received from Christ, the first one being of Christ himself, standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, representing then the seven churches, and symbolically all the churches of Christ belonging to him in the world. That's recorded in chapter 1 of Revelation. And then John was instructed by Christ to write letters to the seven churches, again representing really all churches of Christ throughout the ages, which are recorded then by John in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. But now in chapter 4, John receives a second vision. As he writes in verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So what we learn here is John is invited to come up into heaven itself by a voice which he had already heard in chapter 1. Most likely it was the voice of Christ himself. And the reason for this invitation is that John might hear what God has planned to do in the future. The events that must take place after this, after the Lord Jesus, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And that's what the rest of the book of Revelation then, of course, is all about. Now, before showing John what will happen in the future, Christ must see him on the throne, must see God on the throne. And so John records in verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit. That is, he was in a mole, in a, in a, in a spirit, that meaning in his, in, his, in his thinking, in his heart, he was transported here up to heaven. And he saw this throne in heaven and the one sitting on the throne. And clearly the person that he saw on that throne was a glorious being, a most glorious being. In fact, John, John does not really identify him. It's clear that it's a divine being that he sees. This is, of course, indeed a vision of God, the triune God himself on the throne. You probably realize that the Bible speaks quite often of God being on the throne, on a heavenly throne. We've sung a few of the Psalms tonight that speak of that. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established a throne in heaven, and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 47 verse 8 states, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And in Isaiah 66, verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And so in this vision, John sees God sitting on a heavenly throne. Because it's from heaven, the dwelling place of God, that he rules over the entire universe. It is from heaven that God sovereignly directs all events on earth and in all the cosmos. And this God on the throne is the most glorious God. Notice how John describes him in verse 3. And he was sitting, was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance. 
And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. I don't know much about jewels or gems myself. In fact, I know very little about them. But the particular jewels mentioned here also mentioned in Revelation chapter 21 as jewels decorating the walls and the foundation of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. The sardius that's mentioned here in our text is, as I understand, a deep red colored gem. And William Hendrickson suggests that it may symbolize the judgments of God or the justice of God. And the rainbow that John saw surrounding the throne resembled an emerald, which is a bright green stone. And we all know how striking a rainbow can be when we see it in the sky as the sun's rays burst through the raindrops and we see that marvelous rainbow probably against the background of a dark sky. It reminds us again of the promises God made that he would never destroy this world again with a flood. But it also, of course, shows us the glory of God. And so the obvious meaning of this view of the one on the throne that John sees here is that God is a most glorious being. In every way, more glorious than any earthly ruler bedecked or crowned with jewels. And then in addition, the one John sees on the throne is pictured as a holy being. We read of that in the response of the four living creatures, and we will come to them in a moment, who never stops saying, according to verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The expression that John takes from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah also received a vision of God in heaven, and heard the cherubim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Yes, this God that is a perfectly holy God. No blemish, no corruption, no speck of sin in him. And then further, this being on the throne is pictured as an almighty God. There's no limit to his power. He's the omnipotent sovereign over the entire universe who controls, indeed ordains all events in nature as well as among the nations. In verse 5, John sees and writes, Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And I think you may know that lightning, flash of lightning, can can have an awesome power, actually. A, A lightning bolt, I understand, can produce as much as a billion volts of electrical energy. And the thunderclap it produces often strikes fear in our hearts. Thinking of Queen Elizabeth, she had a lot of influence. But she was actually very limited, very limited in her power, as most most earthly royalty, of course, is today. But the king on the throne of heaven is the almighty God, who has unlimited power and can do whatever he pleases. And then furthermore, he is portrayed as an eternal God. That's also indicated here in chapter 4 several times. Verse 8 describes him as the one who was and who is and who is to come. And verse 9 speaks of him as him who lives forever and ever. Verse 10 repeats that same phrase. The elders worship him who lives forever and ever. What a God he is. He's full of glory. He is perfectly holy. He is almighty. And he is eternal. And so like John, our eyes too must first of all be focused on him. The one on the throne. 
This is the God who reigns over the universe. And what a comfort, what an assurance this is for all of God's children. And one important thing for all peoples and rulers of the earth to remember as well. The funeral of an earthly ruler should remind all of them who is really on the throne, who really wears the crown, who really holds the scepter that can never be taken away and that will endure forever. The one on the throne that John sees will never lie as a dead person in a coffin to be honored for his past life and deeds. No, he is the God who is today and forever always on the throne, always in full control of all peoples and events. Those that have happened in the past, those that are happening today, those that will still happen in the course of time. Yes, congregation, as God's people, must never fail to see. We must always keep our eyes fixed on the one who sits on the throne, our triune God. Then we can have great confidence. Then we can have strong hope as we live in this world and never be afraid, no matter what happens in the world in our times or in the times to come. But now let's turn next to look with John in the vision that he received from the throne room in heaven. And a second truth that is presented here to us and to him as it was to him. Not only did he see God himself, first of all, on the throne, but he also then saw those who surrounded that throne of God. Indeed, several kinds of persons are mentioned here as being around the throne. The first group is mentioned in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now who is that talking about? Who are those 24 elders? Well, 24, as our boys and girls certainly know, we should all know, 24 is simply 2 times 12. And 12 is a significant number in the book of Revelation, as it is in the rest of Scripture. Twelve is the number symbolizing the people of God. Twelve, we could say, represents or symbolizes the church of God. And more particularly, twelve always symbolizes the redeemed people of God. You all know that there were twelve tribes that composed the nation of Israel. And they were indeed descended from the twelve sons of Jacob. Those are the Old Testament people of God. The chosen covenant people of the old dispensation. Not meaning that they were all true believers for sure in God or served. Not were all members of that true church of Christ. In fact, many were not. But as Israel was chosen by God, it was chosen to be his special people. And so each of the tribes that God had chosen to belong to him were ruled over, as it were, by the elders of Israel. So here we see the elders before the throne. And then in the New Testament age, Christ established the new Israel, the new people of God, the church of Christ. And on whom did he build that church? Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 20, where Paul describes the church as God's household. And he says, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. How many apostles were there? 
Again, I know all of our children here certainly would know the answer to that as well. There were 12 apostles that Christ chose. Why 12? Why 12? Because they correspond to the 12 tribes and elders of Israel. They were the continuation, as it were, of the Old Testament people of God. Indeed, the church is built on the testimony of the apostles and prophets recorded in the Old and the New Testaments as the foundation of the church's faith and Christ himself being then the cornerstone of that church, of that entire building of both the Old and the New Testament people of God. And so combine these two now, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles through whom the New Testament church was established, combine those two and you have 24. They represent the universal church. God's redeemed people throughout all places and ages. Chosen to be long to him by grace alone, of course. Yes, they are privileged here to stand around the throne of God as his servants. They belong to him. Indeed, they reign with him. Because notice that in chapter 4, verse 4, that these 24 elders were each sitting on a throne that surrounded God's throne. And they were dressed in white garments, the color of purity and holiness, because through the blood of Christ, they were saved from sin, and they were made perfectly holy and righteous in him. And it says they had golden crowns on their heads. The Greek word for crowns in this case is stephanos, which refers not to a royal crown, a kingly crown, but a laurel wreath of victory. And now, of course, it is true that the members of the church are not yet all in heaven today. We here are still a part of the church militant. We are not yet among the church triumphant in glory. But as God's redeemed people, all of them saved by his grace will reign with him and they will worship him. They are securely a part of his temple already now. The king is on the throne and is among us. He dwells in his holy temple. And this scene that we're seeing here really is a temple scene. Yes, we see that. There's a reference here to the Holy Spirit, referred to in our text in verse 5, and in this way, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And those seven spirits of God are not referring to the angels, but that's a description really of the Holy Spirit with his perfect sevenfold energy or power ever living, ever burning in the temple of the church. And then, of course, we know that in that holy place, there stood a lampstand with its seven branches. That was the Holy Spirit also symbolized living among God's people as their eternal flame. And so we see the church as a special place in God's plan and all that happens in the world. God has his chosen people his holy nation, his royal priesthood in every land, every continent of earth today. And they're all called to serve and praise him. They're all called out of darkness to dwell in his marvelous light. As we read in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. What a privilege it is for us too. What a blessing of divine grace that we can belong to the king. The king on the throne. And then John sees in his vision another group that surrounds God's throne. And they were even a little closer to that throne than the 24 elders. 
Because listen to verse 6, the last part of verse 6. And in the center and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And then John describes those creatures as he saw them. The first one looked like a lion, the second like a calf, the third one had the face of a man, and the fourth looked like a flying eagle. And each of them had six wings and were full of eyes. And now you ask again, we ask, who are those strange-looking creatures? What do they represent? Why are they near God's throne? And well, there was an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel by name, who had a similar vision of God in heaven. And you can see that or read of that in the first chapter of his prophecy. There, Ezekiel too saw four living creatures with wings and eyes that could see all around and with faces resembling a lion and a bull and a man and an eagle. They were a little bit different from the living creatures that John saw because each of the living creatures that Ezekiel saw in his vision, each of them had four faces. But the living creatures that John saw here, each just had one face. But overall, there is that striking similarity between these two visions. And now in Ezekiel's visions... Those four living creatures are said to be cherubim. Cherubim, or a high class of angels. And that's also what these four living creatures represent here in John's vision. They represent that special class of angels who surround God's throne. They're like the cherubim in Ezekiel's vision. And like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision, who cry unceasingly, holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts. And their task, being there around the throne, at the center of the throne, is to guard, to guard the throne of God. They have eyes all around to make sure no one impure comes near to this holy God. Nothing sinful can come into his presence. They have the strength of a lion because they can serve God with the diligence that he's given to them. They have the swiftness of an eagle to carry out his will immediately. And they have the intelligence of a man. They represent the angels of God who always serve and worship him. But notice, notice, those living creatures are not on thrones like the 24 elders were. The angels are perfect and holy beings and powerful beings as God created them to be. But they are not the crown, not the crown of God's creation as man was made to be as an image bearer of God. The angels are forever God's servants who do his bidding night and day. And they're also, as you can read in Hebrews 1, our servants by God's decree. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? But here in the vision that John sees in Revelation 4, their role is especially to glorify God and to guard his majesty and his holiness and to offer worship to him. And that brings me then, people of God, to our third and last thought tonight. In and that is the response that ought to be given then to the one who sits on the throne above all thrones by all those who surround him. And you know, it's a, it's a fitting way to end our brief look here at this grand vision. It's one thing, you know, to simply look at the throne that's in heaven 
But it's another thing as to how we respond to him. And we must respond to him. That's the whole point, really, of this vision that Christ gave to John, and which John records here by divine inspiration for us. Why did Christ give this vision to John? Well, we read earlier, as I mentioned, that God was going to reveal to him, Christ was going to reveal to him what would take place in the future. But before he was ready to hear what God had planned for the future, John had to see first who was on the throne of the universe. Why? That he might know and be assured that it is God who is on the throne. He's the one that's going to be in charge of all the events that will take place. He will direct all these things by his sovereign, almighty will as the eternal king. And so how must we respond to the king on the throne? Well, one response indicated clearly in this chapter is that we must respond with worship. Listen to verse 9. And when the living creatures, meaning the cherubim, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Worship is always the first and primary response of God's people to him. It's the response of all the angels of God in heaven. And as the angels are giving glory and honor to God, it's to single, as it were, for all the church to also fall down before the throne of God and worship him. And so after they worship him, all the 24 elders who read, representing that church of all ages, all fall down and all worship God. That's always the number one response of God's people. Those in heaven and those still on earth. Indeed, we will worship him forever and ever in the new creation. And so how important it is to already worship that God today. For when that worship falters, when Christians neglect to offer that worship to their king, they are failing in their most important duty. And it will inevitably lead to a decline in their whole life. I mentioned how in England and other lands, maybe 10% even darkened the doors of a church at all. They have declined seriously where they used to have people filling the churches. Declined because they have failed in their spiritual life because they have failed to worship God. Worship is the central, the central act of devotion we must offer to God. And yet that isn't all. Because what else do the 24 elders do? We listen to the end of verse 10 and 11. It says, And they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Notice they cast their crowns before the throne of the Almighty King. What does that tell you? It indicates their total submission to the king on the throne. They throw their laurel wreaths, their crowns of victory at God's feet. Because these people realized, these saints, they were not worthy of praise. They were not deserving of adoration. 
It was through Christ that they had received the victory of salvation. And they were mere creatures whom God had made, fallen into sin, but redeemed by him in his grace. Only God is worthy of all praise and obedience. Therefore they sang, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then they give the reason for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. You might ask in your mind, why didn't they say, because you saved us by your will and decree? Because you see, that will come next. That will come next. The following chapter in this particular vision John sees, their offering of praise to him who in through the Lamb has saved them. But first comes this truth. This king is the sovereign creator who created all things and by whom all creatures have their being. And why did he create them and us? That they might all honor him and serve him in everything they do. And that too is our task today, isn't it? Also of us here on earth. That's the truth that all men really should profess, but don't. That God is the one who has created all things. And all things have come into being because of him and exist in him. And yet so many sinners refuse to acknowledge him as the sovereign creator and king. Well, someday they will all acknowledge him as such. And they will all bow their knee before him. Including every single person that was at that funeral service in the Westminster Abbey. When Queen Elizabeth's funeral was held there. All of them will bow the knee before their creator God. But let us who have received through this vision of John through his spirit, let us who have received this vision of our God reigning in heaven on his throne, may we in our life and throughout our life always bow before him. And having worshipped him here again this evening, let's leave from here again then as well in this week to offer to him our humble obedience. Remember, he alone is worthy to receive all praise and glory and honor and power. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we may all humbly bow before you again and count it a privilege that we are called upon to surround your throne also as one day we will indeed do so in all glory and perfection to offer our praise and worship to you, our creator God, our sovereign king. And we pray that your name may be acknowledged, O Lord God, throughout the earth. We thank you for those occasions which remind people that indeed you are sovereign and king. But we pray that you will also by your gracious spirit work in the hearts of so many who have failed to do so and will continue to do so, that you will still work in the hearts of many to make them realize that they need to humble themselves in repentance and in true faith before you are God, through faith and humbleness before Christ, their Savior and their Lord. 
And so we pray for that, O Lord, and we ask that you'll help us again as we leave your house tonight to offer our worship to him, to you, O Lord, our God, who is on the throne forever and ever. Amen.